On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. As we travel around this part of the Sea of Galilee area, Mike, we've come to Capernaum, a place that we've heard referenced in the Bible, I'm sure, many times. Capernaum, is, is that the correct pronunciation? Well, it's how we pronounce it, isn't it, in the West, and it's probably what we're going to use in um, this series. I was just talking to our guide a few minutes ago, and he was saying it's actually pronounced in Hebrew, Farnaum, which means the village of Nahum. Not the Nahum, the prophet in the Bible, some unknown Nahum. So it started out as a little village named after him. Um, but rather than sounding a bit pedantic uh, in our broadcast and talking about Farnaum all the time, we'll call it Capernaum because that's, I think, what most of us are familiar with. Now, we've come from sort of Nazareth following the life of Jesus. We're in Capernaum then. So how different is Capernaum to Nazareth, for example? Uh, very, very different indeed. We've seen in a previous episode that when Jesus was rejected in Nazareth, he took that long journey through the Arbel Pass and came here to Capernaum, which was in Jesus's time a city on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. A much bigger place, first of all. Scholars estimate its population was, you know, anywhere up to two or three thousand people. Uh, a much wealthier place. Nazareth, we've said before, was really a little backwater, a small village. But we know that this was a much wealthier place. Why? Because all the ruins of the homes around us that we're sitting amongst here showed much finer homes. The synagogue that dominates this site was huge and really well built. Obviously, a lot of money spent on that. So it was a much wealthier city. And it was a much more strategic city. Jesus didn't come here because it was wealthy. He came here because it was strategic. Why? Well, one, it's on the sea. And we know from the Gospels that he often used the sea to get around this area to be able to travel more quickly. Two, it's on the main highway of those days, the Via Maris, the way of the sea that started in Egypt, ran up the coastal plain, then crossed the plain of Jezreel across to Galilee, up to Capernaum, and then on up, whether it was to Damascus or Mesopotamia, wherever it might be. So it's really strategic, on the sea, on the main highway, and by the way, we've discovered recently the highway did pass right through Capernaum. Some years ago, scholars used to think it ran outside the city, but they found the Roman milestone. You and I have just been looking at it, mm. that was located right here in the city. And when you say highway, not like we would think of a, you know, a motorway or, or a main <laughs> road. This was like a trade route. Yeah, a major trade route that linked places and so was very strategic for those places. So you've got, you've got water transport, You've got road transport. Oh, and to throw another thing in, you're right on the border here between the territory of Galilee that was governed by Herod Antipas, Herod the Great's son, and Trachonitis, which was governed by Herod Philip, another of Herod's sons. And so this was a, quite a trade area. And being on the border, that meant there were lots of taxes to pay, which gave people um, like Matthew quite a good income and potentially a sort of clash of cultures I mean people from all over the wider region coming through this area yeah it's interesting isn't it this was undoubtedly a thoroughly Jewish city all the excavations all the bones that have been found here not one single pig bone found like you find down in Tiberias for example a Gentile city so a thoroughly 
Jewish city, a thoroughly Jewish base, and yet one that all sorts of people would have passed through, including Gentiles. So, you know, Jesus was really shrewd, really strategic when he chose this place as the base for his ministry. Was it as simple as that? Did he just choose it? Well, um, he did, but you know, he, he, he never did anything at random. And in choosing it, he was fulfilling a prophecy that had been made 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew often quotes the Old Testament to show how Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. And when Matthew talks about Jesus' relocation from Nazareth to Capernaum, um, he writes this, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, John the Baptist, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, where we are now, mm -hmm. which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the Old Testament tribes, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah had seen this. Way back. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. Now remember we've said this city itself thoroughly Jewish but this area many many Gentiles around and by the way that means that someone like Peter who had a trade he was a fisherman he had to buy and sell things uh, he would have known not just Hebrew or Aramaic which was the more colloquial form of Hebrew that was used in everyday language uh, he and the other disciples would almost certainly have known Greek as well because it was used in the culture around them and just as today, as you and I have travelled around, we hear people being able to speak both Hebrew and Arabic in this part of the world. So in Jesus' time, people would have spoken both Aramaic, simplified Hebrew, and Greek, which helps explain what question that people asked. How is it that some of these followers of Jesus could write Gospels in Greek like this? Well, because they used it in everyday life. This particular location, I can see all around us, ruin upon ruin. I mean, stones everywhere. It's a very big site as well. Uh, what, what can you see? Well, what we see all around us are the remains, the ruins of some of those houses that we talked about, made of the black local basalt stone, the volcanic stone that's so common in this area. And... Clearly from these ruins, we can see that, you know, they were quite significant houses. Now, remember, back up in Nazareth and in the Arbel Pass, we've seen that people sometimes, the poor, lived in caves or perhaps in caves with a little home added on in front. These are quite sophisticated homes. In fact, many of these homes were built for the Jews by Roman architects really? and Roman builders because they were the ones who knew how to build. So if you had money, which many of the people here did, then you brought in Roman architects and Roman builders to build your fine home for you. So we're surrounded here by the remains of some of those homes uh, of Jesus' time. But the other two things that really dominate this site, the first is the synagogue behind us, and perhaps we'll talk about that in a moment. But it's huge in comparison to some of the synagogues that you and I have seen on our travels so far that were pretty small. This 
is a really big synagogue that would have held several hundred people. And just to its south is, well, frankly, what looks like a flying saucer. It's a modern church that's been built over other ruins, the site of reputedly Peter's mother-in-law's house, or his house, as it reputedly came. Uh, and the flying saucer above it has a glass floor, so you can actually look down and see his home. Well, let's talk about the synagogue, because you say it does dominate. I mean, it's, it's a, on a grand scale, and, and in sort of two parts, as a synagogue would be. Yes, uh, and it dominates not just the landscape here. It's going to dominate a lot of Jesus' ministry, which we'll come to in a moment. But what we see here is a synagogue that was built in the 4th century, but actually on the foundations of the very synagogue that Jesus himself would have used. So as we look at it, we see at the bottom several layers of this black basalt stone, which was the synagogue of Jesus' time. The archaeologists have dated it, and we know that that layer on the platform was from the time of Jesus. But the synagogue was then rebuilt in the 4th century, and it's then built in limestone, in the white stone above it, and that's most of what we see there. But I find it, I just find it so thrilling to think it was here in this place, on this location, where Jesus did so much of his teaching. Uh, a facade at the front facing south towards Jerusalem. You come in through one of the main entrances and you're immediately in this large area with a roof held up by pillars that ran down a few meters away from the wall and between the pillars and the outside walls on three sides, two stone levels of seats for people to sit in. At the bottom end, now a blank wall, but there would have been what was called the Ark. Not the Ark as in Noah's Ark, but the great box in which the scrolls of the Torah would have been kept and brought out. There would have been a reading desk there as well. And then on the east side of the main synagogue, a smaller hall, which would have been where the women gathered. Because, of course, in those days, the men and the women gathered separately as they still do in some branches of Judaism today and in other religions around the world. So we've got these two really big halls reflecting how big this whole community must have been to have been able to maintain and build a, a synagogue of that size. And when Jesus came in to teach in this synagogue, how, how did that work? I mean, did he just stand up or was he on a rotor or was he the <laughs> guest speaker or, or how did it work? Yeah, the way it was normally done, it wasn't a free-for-all, that's one thing for sure. The thing is about a synagogue, let, let's just set it in context first of all. Um, it wasn't the equivalent of church that you went to on Sunday and that was it. Synagogue was the heart of Jewish life. It comes from a Greek word, zunagogi, a coming together. It was a coming together place. And so you came together, yes, on Sabbath, to hear the scriptures being read and expounded. But you would also come at other times to pray. And even it often served as a sort of what we would call a community center. So it's the hub, it's the heart of life. But when Jesus would have come here on the Sabbath, and the New Testament tells us that that was his practice. Every Sabbath, he used to go to the synagogue as a good Jew. And he would have sat as all the others sat. But the practice was for the 
leader or the ruler of the synagogue. That's a phrase that sometimes comes up. By the way, Jairus, that story of Jairus and his daughter, Jairus was one of the rulers, the leaders of this synagogue here where we are. And the leader of the synagogue for that day would have invited someone, someone of whom they knew they could trust, not any Tom, Dick or Harry, invited them to come and to read the scripture for that day. Just like we said Jesus did back in the synagogue at Nazareth, where it just happened to be Luke 4. So as a rabbi with a growing reputation, we know that he would have often been asked to not just read the scripture, but then, remember we said previously, the practice was then to comment, to give a little mini homily or sermon on what you had heard. And I find it very moving to think right here, just a few feet away from where we are, is where Jesus taught, but taught the scriptures like no one else, brought it to life like no one else, and backed up his teaching by the miracles that he performed also. And the congregation that would have been listening to him then here in this quite special place, I mean this big place compared to Nazareth, for example, uh, his audience back in Nazareth was smaller because the place was smaller. Here there would have been the wealthy, a real cross-section of people. Yeah, a Jewish cross-section, remember, but a good cross-section of people. The interesting thing is, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever and whoever they were, one of the things that's noted in the Gospels is that when Jesus taught here and taught in the area around here, he impacted people in a way that nobody else had ever done. Um, there's an interesting verse in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, where it says that the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Now, what did that mean? Well, the classic Jewish way of teaching for rabbis in those days, if you wanted a teaching on a particular truth or you went with a particular question, they would say, well, on the one hand, this scripture says this. On the other hand, this scripture says that. And on this hand, the scriptures say this. And on the other hand, or sometimes they would give a ruling by saying things like, well, that's a very good question. Now, on the one hand, um, Rabbi Ben David would say this. However, Rabbi Ben Michael would say that. And you never really got a straight answer. You've got to, on the one hand, on the other hand. And here comes Jesus. And what stood out to them as he teaches in this place is that he teaches them who's one who had authority. He did not go looking to other rabbis, other traditions, other rulings for his authority. He was his own authority. And there was something about what he taught and how he taught it that just made people in this place and all round about sit up and listen and think, my goodness, we've never heard anything like this before. And because what Jesus was saying was making ripples around this area, he was establishing himself, in a sense, in this place as well. This was, this was his base, as we're calling it. His, his headquarters? Yeah, very much so. Um, probably headquarters is a modern word, isn't it, these days? But it was certainly his base. It was from here that he went in and out. Um, the Gospels sometimes talk about you know, Jesus going out to minister, and then, then it says, and then he went back to his hometown. But as you read the next verse, you see that it's referring to Capernaum. So he relocates here, and this becomes his hometown. This becomes his base. And where the, what I described as the flying saucer church over the house of 
Peter's mother-in-law originally, that will become part of his base. Some of the teaching and miracles will actually happen there in that house. Some of the others will happen here within the synagogue. So it becomes very much a, a base from which he will go out and take his message into the community round about. Because you've explained before that he said himself there was nowhere for the Son of Man to lay his head. So he didn't have a home of his own, but he lodged here, I suppose, with the best way of putting it. Yes, and Peter's mother-in-law gladly opens her home because we find in Mark chapter 1 that one of his first miracles in Capernaum is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And, you know, one imagines that she was so thrilled at being healed that she says, hey, my doors are open, you know, this is your base from now on. My home is your home. And it does become his home in that sense. It becomes very much his base for all that he does. Sounds like there's lots of references to Capernaum in, in the New Testament. Uh, what are some of the others that are worthy of mentioning just now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you find Capernaum all over the place uh, once you start looking. So I, I spoke earlier about the people who were amazed that he taught as one who had authority right here in this place. But the very next story in Mark's Gospel is of a demon-possessed man who comes and confronts him here in this synagogue. You know, the thought of us being here and this raging man coming, screaming through those front doors, ranting and raving, and Jesus healing him, setting him free from this demon. There's another lovely story uh, in Luke chapter 7 where he heals the servant of a centurion. But if you look carefully, as they go to Jesus and beg with him, to heal this Gentile person's servant. What they say to him is, please, you know, he, he, he loves God and he loves these people and he has paid for our synagogue to be built. So this synagogue behind us was actually paid for by that Roman centurion. What was a Roman centurion doing here? Well, Capernaum was a garrison town. I said that it was on the border between two territories. So there was a permanent detachment of Roman soldiers here just to make sure to keep the peace. Um, it's here that he's challenged about paying the temple tax when he just walks those few meters away from us to the shore and gets, gets his followers to get the coin from the fisher's mouth. And that great story of uh, Jairus's daughter. Jairus goes begging Jesus, doesn't he, to heal his daughter. He gets delayed on the way by that woman who had the hemorrhage and by the time Jesus is free to continue his journey, the message comes, your daughter's dead. But Jesus says, don't worry, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. And he goes to the home and he raises this girl from the dead. And Jairus was one of the leading figures, one of the rulers of this synagogue behind us. So there's loads of stories in the Gospels that either happen in or very close to where we are sitting right now i've got to go back to one of those stories you mentioned there the the, the, the coin in the mouth of the fish I mean, well, just remind me about that <laughs> yeah do you not find coins in the mouths of your fish david yeah a story from uh, matthew 17 that says after jesus and his disciples arrived in capernaum here we are the collectors of the two drachma tax came to peter and said doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax yes he does he replied and when peter came into the house which house? Well, the house down there, his mother-in-law's house, the house that Jesus has made, his base, just metres away from where we are. Jesus said to him, What do you think, Simon? 
From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Jesus is saying, here he is, God's son. He's the one who ought to be collecting taxes. But then Jesus says, well, the sons are exempt, but so that we may not offend them. I like that. You know, Jesus wasn't afraid of offending, but he didn't give needless offence. He only gave offence where it was really needed. So that we may not offend them, go to the lake, just metres away, and throw out your line, take the first fish that you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. And believe it or not, fishermen still to this day pull in fish at times that have got coins in their mouth or silver things in their mouth. So it's a story that's very, very believable indeed. You said that Capernaum was his sort of base. So it was from here, was it, that he kind of launched out to the wider world? Yeah, because of its strategic location. Because here, people would come in. People would come in and be able to hear, and they would carry the message. But also, it'd be from here, particularly by boat. The number of times we see Jesus jumping in a boat, it was his Uber of the day, you know, and nipping across this part of the lake and taking the message out. So, Capernaum is incredibly strategic as a base for him. And, of course, as we go through the rest of the New Testament, we'll see other followers of Jesus getting very strategic bases. A strategic base will be in Antioch to the north of here, from where the first Christians will send out Paul and Silas and Paul and Barnabas on their mission trips. Paul will be a great believer in strategy. You know, when he went on his mission trips, he didn't go here, there or everywhere. He always went to the key regional city in that area. Why? So he could plant a community of Christians, move on, and then they could reach out into their area. And we've called our whole series, you know, Jesus Then and Now. So for me, one of the things that does and highlights to us is, you know, there's still room for strategy today. Now, it has to be strategy that is Holy Spirit-led and dependent. You know, we're, we're not seeking to become professional business people who work out a business plan. We want to be, as churches and Christians, dependent on the Holy Spirit. But it is not unspiritual to have a strategy. As long as we are developing that strategy prayerfully looking for the Holy Spirit's nudges and leadings. God is a great believer in planning and in strategy. Jesus was, the apostles were, Paul was. Why shouldn't we be? And the fact that this place, Capernaum, was the base for Jesus, was his base. He, you know, he could have travelled from place to place and each time he found somewhere that was his new base. But this was his base. How important is it to have a base? <laughs> That's a really good question, David. I, I think it's vital to have a base. You see, why did Jesus come back here? Well, actually, I don't even think it was for this synagogue that we're sitting next to. I think it was for that house down there, the home of Peter's mother-in-law. And it looked as if Peter himself relocated there eventually. He had a, a home base. He had a place to call home. And, you know, all of us need a place to call home. All of us need a base from which we can go out and come in. Now, for some of us, our first base is, is our family. But for all of us who are followers of Jesus, all of us absolutely need a base of the local church. There can be no such thing in New Testament terms 
as a solitary Christian. You know, the Christian who says, oh yeah, I love Jesus, I read my Bible, I pray, but I don't bother with church. I'm sorry you haven't read your Bible as well as you think you have done. Because the New Testament has no sense of a solitary Christian, me and Jesus. It's me and you and Jesus. And so for us today, we too need our base. We need a community of God's people. What would Jesus have done when he came back here, first of all? Well, I'll tell you what, he'd have had a bit of R&R, as much of it as he could have got. He would have relaxed a little bit, chilled. He's there among friends. Church needs to be a place where we come and get that rest and recuperation and get built up and encouraged and where we give out to others to build up and encourage them. So absolutely every Christian needs a base. You know, if someone's listening to this today and thinking, well, you know, I'm just a Christian on my own. That's all I need. Thank you. And sometimes, you know, David, that happens because people got hurt in a church and they decide, that's it, I'm having nothing to do with church anymore. I'll follow Jesus, but not the church. Hey, we all get hurt everywhere. We human beings, sadly, we end up hurting one another. Learn how to forgive people, learn how to grow up and let the call of Jesus to be part of his church bigger than the hurt in your life. Who knows what God might do with you when you get stuck into a church base because all of us can do more together than on our own. I'm thinking of the effect of the global pandemic on a sense of base that people might have had. Things have been unsettling for, for many people. They have, haven't they? And, you know, it was very hard. I think all of us found it hard, didn't they? And, you know, it got to the point where we have, if we had to do church on Zoom one more time, we would have all screamed you know, thank god for things like zoom and all that technology because it meant sure that we weren't isolated during that time of pandemic when the world pretty much shut down but i've seen in the church that i'm part of now and other churches as well there are some people you know who stayed at home to watch it on tv who still haven't come back to their churches I want to say to them it's not the same thing watching at home it's a great place to be when there's a pandemic if you're sick at home frail can't come out that week god bless you it's great but the place to be really is with god's people in that base of god's people that god has given you i get the sense that you're excited about this place as the base for jesus partly because you can connect back to the stories you read but because he did have a base do you know what i am and Maybe you've put your finger on something there, David, because I've visited Israel many times and been around these sites many times, and, and this one always does excite me. And part of that is the sort of biblical theologian in me who just loves the history here and looking at the archaeology. But I think you're right. It's also this sense of this was his base. And I've been a church pastor for many years now. I, I've believed in church ever since I became a Christian at the age of 18. I think it's impossible to be a solitary Christian on your own. Listen, if you're locked up in prison somewhere in some state where that's what they end up doing with Christians, God bless you and keep you. That's not the issue. The issue is for those of us in the West who have the freedom to go along and become part of a church. And if you say, well, I don't like the church down the road, well, go around the corner and find a different one. There are so many varieties of churches today, high and low, and those that sing hymns and those that sing songs and those that sing a mixture of the two. There's got to be one that fits. Though, hey, listen, at the end of the day, 
you're not looking for a church that you like. You're looking for a church where God's saying, this is where I want you. Because church is not about you and it meeting all your needs. It's also about you meeting everyone else's needs. So I do get excited here because it brings home even Jesus need a base. And if Jesus needed a base, then so do you and I and everybody else, David. Please pray for us. Lord Jesus, here in this place where you walked and lived, in this place that was your base, I pray that each of us today would search our hearts and look at our own commitment concerning our own base. If we've not got one, to take up the challenge of finding one. If we've got one and we've been a bit iffy or fallen out with it, to deal with that attitude and to get back to the place where you've put us. And for those of us who love church, Lord, renew our vision and our hope and our mission that it's from that base that you can not only build us up, but send us out, even as you sent out your own son from this base. We ask for your help for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30-minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB Player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.